Okay, I'll come back to that. All right. Why does the white man's ice seem cold? So uh, once again, I hope the entire screen is being taken up by the content. Is that true? Yeah. Beautiful. Hey, uh, we're familiar with the name Karl Marx, and his father is, you know, converted from Judaism to Lutheranism to escape one of the challenges in our world, which was and still is anti-Semitism. So interestingly enough, even though Karl Marx was of Jewish descent. He wrote essays that really could be seen as anti-Jewish. Why am I bringing this up? Even though he knew who he was, even though he had knowledge of self, even though he understood from whence he came, he did things that were against his people's uplift. I mean, let that sink in. He did things that were against his people's uplift. There's a term that goes around now that's uh, been in favor, maybe it gets the last 15, 20 years, the term anti-blackness. And it's, it's anti, is behavior that's against us. Behavior that's against melanated people you know, indigenous people, you know, whatever term you want to rock with, there's behaviors that are against us. And who are doing some of these behaviors? We are. So there's, there's this concept that the white man's ice is actually cold. And I, I remember my father telling me this, you know, may his memory be a blessing, may his name help overcome the struggles. Um, my father used to talk about how in his neighborhood, people truly believe that the quote-unquote white man's ice was colder and they behaved in that manner and you'll see why i'm bringing this up as i go along with the presentation so so-called black people have been under the system of white dominance for over 400 years in the united states of america and since then we've kind of got ourselves in a state of comfort we're used to seeing whites at the top of the pecking order and so-called blacks at the bottom. We're used to seeing so-called whites control all the resources. We're used to, and I'm putting in the quotations in the so-called, right? We're used to black people begging to go to work for white corporations. We're used to sending our children to be educated by white people. So because we're so used to what we consider white supremacy, we have some of us who believe that being closer to white means being closer to success. Now, this is a quote from Jaron Mays. This is really kind of describing the same thing that Karl Marx has been stated to be following anti his people. Seeing somebody else as being more powerful, seeing somebody else as being the standard, seeing somebody else as being those you need to emulate and not seeing yourself in that picture. 
you know, the uh, the European Jews that migrated to the United States of America very often changed their first names so they would fit in, thinking that changing who they were perceived to be would provide you know would provide them with some access to power, right? Interestingly enough, they also did some other things. And these other things we're going to discuss a little later in the presentation. But it wasn't the changing of identity. It wasn't trying to fit in. It wasn't masking who they were that got the, you know, the generalized Jewish community to be as empowered as they are. It wasn't those strategies. They tried those strategies. They tried those strategies in Poland. They tried those strategies in other parts of Europe where they changed some aspect of themselves so they could fit in. But interestingly enough, in many of the Jewish communities in Europe, in Africa, <laughs> in South America, there was one thing that they all rallied behind and doing those things allowed them to become empowered. Now, I used to study under a guy named Daniel Lappin, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Um, he's been on Oprah a couple of times. He's been on Dave Ramsey show and things of that nature. And one of the things that he says that I think is really interesting is when you look at the Torah, that the, you know, the, the, the writings, the Torah proper, the writings that also includes the Talmud and some other writings. But if you look at it, there's some instructions on how one should behave economically. And that's one calling card that quote unquote Jews can use throughout the world. They refer back to this document that teaches them how to stay on code. They refer to a document that teaches them how to stay on code. So Dr. Martin Luther King gave some really interesting information when it comes to economics. Black power is a call for the pooling of black financial resources to achieve economic security. Hmm. See, when we think about Dr. Martin Luther King, we think about going along to get along. We think about trying to fit in. We think about trying to blend in. My children will go to school with these children. But that's not the crux of his argument. That's not the crux of his argument. That's what's being kind of pushed on us by the media. That's not the crux of his argument. Interestingly enough, when we look at his... Uh, his great I Have a Dream speech, which was a extemporaneous piece of a longer talk. The longer talk, he talks about boycotting. He talks about how we have insurance companies. We should keep our money with our insurance companies. We have taxi cab companies. We should keep our money with our taxi cab companies. You know, I'm, I'm actually not quoting him, but these are some of the things that Dr. King talked about before Um the singer, I can't think of her name right now. So starts with Marilyn something. Um, she said, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And then he gave this extemporaneous speech, which is now called the I Have a Dream speech. But everything he talked about before, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream is some really revolutionary, interesting guidance that our prophet gave. 
And look, there's nothing new about poverty. But now we have the techniques and strategies to get rid of poverty within our community. He was talking about that then. We're talking about the strategies and the techniques now. So check this out. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, Today, many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. This is what we are faced with, and this is a reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. We're coming to get our check. Uh, hey, get your check. Why is getting your check so important? Why is the concept of getting your finances so important? Well, our plight will change when we change ourselves. Prophet Noble Drew Ali stated this. That's why it's important that we consider and focus on firmly the idea and the necessity of keeping each dollar spent as much as possible within the sphere of our own activities where they will create further opportunities of business enterprise and wider opportunities. <laughs> Yo, the guidance is right there. And, and let me go a little deeper. Let me go a little deeper. So back in 2020, I'm, I'm going to say a little too much. Back in 2020, you know, we had President Trump, right? We had President Biden. But we also had, from the Libertarian Party, Joe Jorgensen, who was running for President of the United States. Joe Jorgensen, the woman on the bus, was on the ballot in every part of the United States of America. And Joe Jorgensen's running mate, is this gentleman named Spike Cohen. I had the opportunity to speak to Spike Cohen, last name Cohen. What does that tell you? All right. I had the opportunity to speak to the good brother Spike, and this is what he said. Framework. That is the framework that leads to people burning down the communities they live in because they don't own any of it and they don't at this point they just want to express how angry they are and the fact that they're actually contributing to gentrification by driving down property values with the actions that they're taking which leads to the vultures coming in buying stuff for pennies on the dollar using their positions of power to edge them out of their own communities and then take over through gentrification that doesn't mean anything to them because in their mind, they are always going to be a consumer and they're always going to be a victim. And it is crucial to break that. And you'll see what happens whenever anyone tries to break that. 
I'm a fan of hip hop music. I listen to rap primarily. Rap and, and, and reggae and R&B and that kind of music. That's what I've always listened to. I have followed Jay-Z his entire career, okay? I have been following him since Reasonable Doubt. Actually, before Reasonable Doubt, when he was doing like uh, uh, cameos on, um, oh, not Lil' Kim, on uh, Foxy Brown and stuff like that, uh, I, I've been following him for a long time. I know what his music has always been about, and, and anyone who follows you know, rap knows what his music is about. His music is about you know, selling drugs and violence against black people and violence against black women and typical gangster rap stuff, right? And we listen to it and we go, oh, some of this stuff's kind of cringy, but, you know, but it's entertaining. It's got a good beat to it, right? right. And, but that's okay. As long as Jay-Z was rapping about being a gangster and being, as he would put it, a real N-word, that was fine. As long as he and other rappers were talking about that, that was perfectly fine. Victim, consumer. I buy lots of stuff. Look at what the world has done to me and my people. As long as you say that, that's okay. Then he did a song called The Story of OJ. And in that song, among other things, he talked about the blueprint for building generational wealth. And he referenced the fact that Jews had bought out their own communities and we're now owning other ones as well. I'm Jewish. I listen to this and I go, yes, finally, finally someone is talking about the blueprint for building generational wealth. Jews came here with nothing and most people hated them and they focused on their money. They focused on their wealth. They focused on building wealth. They focused on accumulating wealth and then from that wealth, the power that comes from wealth. And we are largely doing well as a result of that. We're still a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of the country. And yet, and there's still a good number of people who either know nothing about us or don't trust us or don't like us. Doesn't matter, we're fine. Doesn't matter what their opinions are about us at this point. And so here he is talking about it and I said, yes, what a great thing, I hope this catches on. And then I watched the media rip him apart for anti-Semitism. How dare Jay-Z suggest that Jewish people own things? What? And then I realized something. As long as he was rapping about selling drugs and what he was gonna do to the next B and any end that got in his way, that was perfectly fine. But the minute that he talked to mostly black people, really anyone could have taken his lesson, but as long as he started talking to black people, the very second he started talking to black people about here is how we aren't victims and how we aren't consumers, how we become victors and producers and owners of things, that's when it became a problem. Anyone who is telling you anything other than your power is going to lie in your economic development and in your seizing your own narrative as much as humanly possible, they're selling you a bad bill of goods. If all they're selling you is there's nothing you can do about this except express your frustration and maybe vote for someone, if that's all they're telling you, they're selling you the same bad bill of goods that's been sold to your community for decades now. <laughs> hey, I talked about this in the last Green Experience that I got a chance to do a presentation in. And they talked about why the Asian American resource circulates longer. And one of the important pieces was cultural cohesion. And, you know, I talked about the six factors of cultural cohesion. Membership, I consider myself a part of this community first. Attraction, I love my people. Perceived cohesion, I was trained to act as a part of the community to serve one another. Participation, I participate in activities that benefit my community. Shared community values, 
As a matter of fact, I'm not the only one who feels this way. We all feel this way. Social capital. The leaders in my community say, hey, I see that you're following the code and we're going to reward you. And the most important thing is the important role of institutions. So it's important that we make sure that our institutions promote messages that tell us the same thing that Dr. King said when he wasn't in church. The same thing that Prophet Noble Drew Ali said in the temple, in his writings. You know, we need to make sure that the important institutions in our areas promote economic empowerment. Because since the late 60s, early 70s, the money in our community circulates one time, in our Latino community, six times, in the Asian community, nine times, in the Jewish community, 15 times, in the general white community, an unlimited amount of times. And we know that communities that self-resource have lower rates of poverty, preventable diseases, pre-adult parenthood, imprisonment, crime, and violence. So there was a historic solution called the Negro Motorist Green Book. I know we don't necessarily use that term Negro anymore, except for the NAACP. Um, <laughs> but um, we're now looking at what the Negro Motorist Green Book did back in the 30s. And our current solution is the Hampton Roads Green Book. All right. So a little bit about the original Green Book. It started in 1936. Um, Victor Hugo Green and his wife Alma Green, you know, they published this green book, which was a directory of places where our people could safely go. Now, it wasn't all our businesses. Some of them were owned by Jewish people. Some of them were owned by white people. But they were safe places where our people would not face terrorism. Well, we didn't have to worry about you know, uh, evil supremacists by the different organizations or by individuals. This was a safe place for us to go. And the interesting thing is this book <laughs> covered the United States of America, Bermuda, Canada, and Mexico. Oh yeah, do, our, do your research. A lot of us are in Mexico. <laughs> a lot of us, as a matter of fact, you know, uh, President Barack Obama was the 44th president, I believe. The second president of Mexico was of African descent. <laughs> that president also ended the enslavement of African people in Mexico with the United States help. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. But, uh, a Victor Green was Travelocity before Travelocity. He also had something called the Reservation Station, which helped people book travel arrangements. I was just looking for a uh, flight last night to Atlanta, and I was using, the, you know, Travelocity. <laughs> well, Victor and Alma Green were Travelocity before Travelocity. It, and the original Green Book was a business solution to the evil supremacy that was being inflicted upon our people. It was a business solution. And I firmly believe that a business solution will work with us now to pull ourselves out of the muck and mire. All right, why did the Green Book end? Well, you know, President Lyndon Johnson and Dr. King and some of the contemporaries 
1964 signed the Civil Rights Act. And when this happened, the racial discrimination that America thumbed up started being thumbed down. And so the book stopped in 1966. Now, um, Victor Green actually passed away in 19... When did he pass? In 1960. So his wife and his daughter continued the Green Book for another six years before they decided to stop. Uh, but it was a business solution. You know, it was legally copyrighted and published. It was sold by mail carriers. It was sold by mail order. It was sold at ESO stations, now Exxon Mobil stations. It was offered by AAA. <laughs> it was distributed by the U.S. government. That's interesting. That's interesting. So um, ours is the Hampton Roads Green Book. And the great thing about the Hampton Roads Green Book is we allow all of us to enter for free. And then we have a tiered um, payment if you want different levels of advertising. But it's a great way so we can capture all of our businesses, our organizations, and our professionals in one place in Hampton Roads. 